Well, today we're going to continue our sermon series out of the book of Revelation we've been walking through over the last few weeks. Uh, we've walked through and talked through just the process of what the end times look like. And again, I encourage you, you've told you a couple weeks ago, like get your phones out and, and, and not so you can like be on Twitter or TikTok or something like that, but rather so you can actually take some images of some of the things that are on the screen to help us understand what can be a, a uh, confusing book, but yet a book that is full of hope and full of promise and full of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we look back and just kind of a recap. We went back to the first week. We looked at Genesis chapter one, or Revelation chapter one. Genesis chapter one is the beginning. <laughs> yeah. But Revelation chapter one, where we see this revelation of Jesus being unfolded to John, and we began seeing what it is that God had in store. Then we went the next week into chapters 2 and 3 where we talked about uh, the churches, those seven specific churches in Asia Minor that uh, had I issues and difficulties and challenges like our churches today. And we walked through that process as well. Then we went to chapters 4 through 7 where Jesus began to unveil the future plans, the judgments that were to come. We talked about the seals that were opened uh, as we walked through, like what the end times look like. Uh, last week, chapters 8 and 10, Charles talked about the seven trumpets of judgment that, uh, again, unveiled and unrolled out into our world, a difficult time. Talked about the little scroll and then uh, in kind of a, a little bit of a, a respite from the destruction, that time of worship found at the end of Revelation chapter 11. Today, we're going to be in chapters 11 and 12. We're going to talk about the two witnesses. We're going to talk about the Antichrist. Christ, who comes to kill them. Talk about how Satan wants to persecute Israel and wants to destroy the Lamb of God. And through it all, the ultimate picture is the hope that comes because of Jesus Christ, because of what He's done, that we have nothing to fear. Now, as we walk through this uh, series, going through the entire book of Revelation, we're going to come to the end of our sermon series on August the 27th, which time that we're actually going to go back and walk through a timeline of prophetic, a timeline of all the things that are going to happen, when they're going to happen, where they're going to happen, what it's going to look like, and walk through from the very Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And so we're going to be walking through that. And so that's going to be our last week, August 27th. It's going to be a great celebration of what God has done. But today we're in chapters 11 and 12. And as we walk through chapters in 11 and 12, we begin to uh, be introduced to seven characters or seven representations of characters in the tribulation period that, that God uses to uh, unveil the hope and the promise that we have in Him. Last week, Charles uh, walked through those seven trumpets. And you'll remember after the sixth trumpet, there was a little bit of an interlude there. There was a pause. Today, we're going to be in the pause as we're kind of walking through those few moments of seeing like what it was in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, uh, between the woes, before the third woe was unveiled for all that was to come. And so we're going to start with Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. If you have your, uh, your Bible booklet with you, it's on page 38. You can take notes, and man, I encourage you to do that. It's a, it's a great opportunity to, you know, just be able to make notes alongside as we're talking. And this will be a resource that you'll be able to keep forever uh, of different things of helping to understand a very important book. And so 
As we begin talking through chapter 11 and 12, what we see is God taking a moment to to remind us of the promise and the hope that he had to Israel, the apple of God's eye. We know that Israel was God's people, God's chosen people, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And here, we're reminded of that, but more importantly, we're reminded of the fact that we serve a God who is a God of promise, a covenant-keeping God. And understand that if God is a covenant-keeping God with Israel, that's good news because that means that God is also a covenant-keeping God for you and me. And don't you want to serve and walk and believe in a God that you know that when He says it, that you can count on it, that it is absolute, that it is guaranteed? That's the God that we're talking about here today. And so let's just go into Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Let's start there. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. I encourage you to circle, highlight, whatever it might be, the 42 months there, because again, in case you're doing the math, that's three and a half years. We're talking about the three and a half years of the tribulation period, the, 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 the first part of the tribulation period there, as John begins to see. And we read this passage, and it talks about how John was told, hey, we want to, the angel gave to John a reed. A reed was like a, a long weed, a long stick back in those times, and they used it like a, a, a ruler we would use today, like a yardstick that we would use today. They would measure off a, a certain length of, of what that rod was, and then they would then go and be able to measure things. And any time, by the way, that you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when it talks about measurements, when it talks about measuring something, it is always a picture of God dealing with the people of Israel. Now, that's important to note. You can go all the way back in scriptures and you see that every time measurement comes up, it's always dealing with Israel. Here's why that's important. Because when you read this, if you read this with no context, you would think, okay, well, why is it that John is told to go measure a building? Why was he told to go measure the temple? We know the temple was a place that, uh, going back to Solomon's time, Solomon built the temple, and then later it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and later rebuilt uh, in Zerubbabel's time, and then it stood until 70 AD when, uh, when Herod destroyed the temple. We know that there was a temple that was there in Jerusalem. So why is it that John is told to measure the temple? Well, understand this. When we see the picture of what God tells John to do, to take the measure and read and measure the temple, the temple didn't exist. Now, what that tells us here is this, is that God is telling John here that we need to consider in this moment, consider the people of Israel. He's not talking about a building. There is no temple. In fact, if you went to Israel today on the Temple Mount, you would see the Dome of the Rock, a building that's been there, a structure that's been there since about 600 or so A.D., a place that the Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven from that spot. Uh, They're wrong, but that's what they believe. And so there is no temple there. So why is God saying, measure the temple? Here's why. He's talking about, again, a reference to the 144,000 Jews that we talked about two weeks ago. He's talking about... Israel is an important component, important part, an important group of people in the midst of the tribulation period. Why? Because God made a promise to Israel that He would take care of them. 
That God made a promise that he would bless those who blessed them and curse those who cursed them. You remember that back from the book of Genesis. And so here, clearly, what the uh, passage is talking about, what John is writing here, is he's talking about Israel. It's important to know that and to understand that in the context of what we're about to read in the rest of this passage, because it's not talking about a building, it's talking about a people, it's talking about God's people. And so understanding here that it's talking about God's people, let's continue to read because in the middle of this season, in the middle of this tribulation period, at the beginning part of the tribulation, God raised up two witnesses, two witnesses that shared the truth. Look what it says in verse 3, and I will give power to my witnesses, my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now again, I encourage you, circle, highlight, 1,260 days. I'll save you the time of doing the math. That's 360 plus days. Guess what that is? That is 3.45762 years. That's what it is, right? It's three and a half years, right? And so here we're seeing all this picture, all this designations that God's given here. A very clear statement that he's going to raise up two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation period that will preach the gospel. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because the church is gone. When the rapture takes place at the beginning of the tribulation period, the church is taken up. Remember, we talked about roughly, some people say, about 2.5 to 2.6 billion people, if it were to happen today, are gone. That's left leaving now 5.4 billion people on the face of the earth that do not know Christ, and God still wants to reach them. And so God raises these two witnesses, and these witnesses, it says here that God will give them power and that they will prophesy. That means they will preach the gospel for, uh, for three and a half years here. They'll be clothed in sackcloth. In case you're wondering what sackcloth is, that's goat hair. They'll be walking around in goat hair. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? They'll be walking around in sackcloth, and they will be preaching the gospel. Now, what is the significance of two? Well, when you go into the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always a picture that whenever someone is a witness, for that witness to be true, there had to be at least two people who were sharing that message. We go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. It says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth it says, uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. In other words, it will be established when two or more preach. God raises up two witnesses. Why is that important? He's dealing with Israel. Why is it important he's dealing with Israel? Because that's the Mosaic law, that only when a message is established by two or more witnesses does that truly, that message truly establish, and that's what it comes from. And so God raises up these two witnesses. Now, these two witnesses are individuals. You'll see in the picture, I think we've got it here somewhere, just kind of a representation of these two witnesses that, that come. They, they, they rise up as these, like a lampstand and, and like oil, like fire. It goes on to tell us that some people believe that uh, these two people are Elijah and Enoch. Now, you see this picture of these two guys here. They're kind of walking around. They look a little scary, and that is because they are scary. Because they're preaching a message that is difficult to hear, and not only a message difficult to hear, but God is using them not only to preach the gospel, but God is using them as a, a measure of justice and judgment. 
Remember the seven seals and the seven trumpets that are being you know, unfolded during this time, the destruction. Remember the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Remember we talked about one-fourth of all of the people on the earth are killed in a moment. We talked about famine. We talked about you know, the water being turned to, uh, to blood, all of those things. You remember the conversations that we've had. And so people are blaming these two for the ones of bringing about all these plagues that are on the earth because they do not believe in God. They believe that these two people are causing all of these problems. And when you recognize and understand that that's the danger that these people thought that the witnesses brought. And so they did not want to be there. Now, some people believe these two people are Elijah and Enoch because uh, those are the two people in the Old Testament who never died. They were just taken up. Some people believe they're Elijah and Moses because of the powers that were given to them. Some people believe they're Elijah and John the Baptist. Some people say that they're really not really people. They're just kind of the representation of God's Word of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to be quite honest with you, I don't think anybody knows who these people are. There's nothing that we can actually like say, absolutely, this is who they are, either though, even though there are like ideas of who they might be. What I think they might be are just individuals that are raised up during the tribulation period by God with supernatural powers to preach the gospel because God can do what transcends the idea of humanity and man. That's what I believe. And so we understand they get up and they preach. And they get up and preach this gospel message. In verse 4 it says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, which is a reference back to Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 4. This idea of two olive trees and the lampstands are important because what it tells us is that it's an unlimited source of power. In other words, they cannot be touched until God is done with them. That the message that they preach, they cannot be stopped, they cannot be destroyed, they they cannot be hampered in the mission that God has given to them. David Jeremiah says this, if we look at the prophecy of Zechariah, we see again two witnesses, Joshua and Zerubbabel from Zechariah chapter 4. And God uses the lampstand and the olive trees as a picture of them. The lampstand burned brightly and the olive tree produced the oil which was burned by the candelabra. It is a picture of the fact that these two witnesses are going to shine in the darkness of the tribulation and that they will be fueled by the holy oil of the Spirit of God. Now, these two witnesses are going to be raised up at the beginning of the tribulation period. Some people say they'll be raised up at the midpoint of the tribulation and they'll go all the way to the end. I believe Scripture doesn't bear that out. I believe they're going to be raised at the beginning of the tribulation and that they're going to begin to preach the gospel through those first three and a half years until the midpoint of the tribulation. And they're going to do that with the power of God. Now, how do they do it? Well, it tells us. They're given supernatural powers. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the day of their prophecy, and that they have power over waters to turn them to blood. And those two statements are what people believe is why it's Elijah and Moses, because both of them had that power in the Old Testament. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. You go back to the first part in verse 5, that fire proceeds from their mouth. Now here's another image that I found that is a picture of these witnesses that kind of gives this idea of the supernatural power that they actually can be like dragons, that they can shoot fire out of their mouth. Now it sounds crazy, doesn't it? 
It sounds stupid, but here's the problem. The problem is this, is that God's word clearly says that if anyone comes against them, if anyone tries to stop them, they do not need a knife, they do not need a a spear, they do not need a gun, that they don't need protection and bodyguards, that literally fire will come out of their mouth, and it says that the people will be killed in that manner, make no mistake. They will have supernatural powers. Why? Because they're preaching the supernatural message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these two witnesses will preach, and they will preach with power. They will preach in ways that that go beyond anything that we can understand. J. Vernon McGee says these two witnesses are immortal and immune to all attacks until their mission is completed. These two witnesses are granted unlimited authority. They control rainfall on the earth, and they're able to turn the water into blood. Certainly reminds us of both Elijah and Moses. Warren Wiersbe says not only do these witnesses declare God's words, but they also do God's work and perform miracles of judgment. And that's important because it's this, it's a picture of a reestablishment of apostolic ministry on this earth. That they will have the powers of the apostles. Remember when the apostles were told by Jesus that they were given all powers to heal, right? To raise the dead. They were given powers to speak on behalf of Jesus. Like that same message will come and it'll come through the mouths of these two witnesses. But it's understand, and we continue reading this passage, is when their work is done, that they're killed. When their work is done, that they're slaughtered. But God, again, always delivers on His promise. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, when they finish their testimony, in other words, when they're done with the work that God has called them to do, page 40 of your notebook, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice, uh, will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now let's go back to this passage again on page 40 of your notebook or in your Bibles or phones, whatever you're following along. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now that word beast there is the Greek word therion. It gives us a picture of a wild beast. A beast that has not been trained, a beast that might see when you're driving down the road and there happens to be a, a deer that's been, you know, killed or been hit by a car and you'll see the, those vultures that will come down and they'll be sitting there on the side of the street and they'll, they'll be sitting there picking at the deer. How many have seen that? I saw that this morning driving in. It wasn't a deer, but someone dropped an entire trash bag out on the side of the road in my neighborhood and there, there were vultures there and they were eating all the food that was left over from whatever party that person had. And they're sitting there. It's kind of that idea. They're wild beasts. And that's the picture here. And this beast that comes out is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist that will rise up. He ascends out of the bottomless pit. And he comes and he will make war against them. And he will kill these two witnesses. And it says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Can anybody tell me what city that might be? A city called Sodom and Egypt. Can anybody tell me what city this might be talking about? It's talking about Jerusalem. And you say, well, how can that be? It's just Sodom and Egypt. That's certainly, that's offensive to say that Jerusalem, the the holy city, the city, the God city, like why would they call it Sodom and Egypt? And here's why, because of the immorality and the idolatry that will overtake that city during the tribulation period. 
because of all the destruction and the desolation that will be in that city. And it's, so it's re- literally called, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where our Lord was crucified. And then it says, and that the entire world, peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days there in the middle of that city. They will not bury these two bodies. Now, obviously, for Jewish people, that is, and for all, you know, Arab people even, like that, that's just a, a, a horrible thing to do. When someone dies, they, they, I mean, by, you know, by their own desire and by their own rules, they bury the body within 24 hours after it's died, after they've died. They get it into the ground to honor the body. And here, these bodies will lie in the streets for three and a half days, and the entire world will see it. Now, if you read this passage like, you know, a hundred years ago, you say, well, how is that even possible? Now, of course, we know it is possible because of internet, because of uh, television cameras, because of video cameras and iPhones and all those kinds of things. The entire world will see these bodies there. And listen, and it says that they will make merry and they will send gifts to one another. In other words, it's going to be like Christmas. Now, why is that true? Why is it that people are actually going to be giving gifts to one another to celebrate these two witnesses who have been killed? Well, I referenced it a few moments ago because the world is going to believe that these two witnesses are the people who brought about the destruction that the seals and the trumpets have unveiled in our world. The fact that right now, remember now, at this point, if it were to happen today, there would have been 8 billion people on the face of the earth, 2.6 roughly billion Christians, the church would be taken up at the beginning of the tribulation period, leaving 5.4 billion people. In the middle of the seven seals, it says that one-fourth of the world's population will be struck down and will be killed. That's about 1.35 billion people. And then it says in the judgments last week from the trumpets that Charles talked about that another third will be killed. That's another 1.3 billion people, which means this that three and a half years ago there were eight billion people on the face of the earth and now today in this story there's now 2.6 billion people left and the world will think that these two people are the reason that that's happened and so that's why they're going to start a whole new holiday of giving gifts to one another and celebrating the fact that these people are finally gone and now things are going to get good again we don't have to worry about the destruction anymore people aren't going to be dying all over the place anymore You know, we're not going to have those plagues that we've been having to deal with. Like, it's over with. They're going to celebrate. And they're going to have like a new holiday. We're a couple of days. We're celebrating Independence Day here in our country. Celebrating our freedom. That's what they're going to be celebrating. Their freedom from what they thought was destruction caused by these two. But listen, we don't finish there. Because in verses 11, it says, it goes, it says this, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered to, into them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And, um, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so in other words, three and a half days after these two witnesses are killed, Their bodies are lying in the street. Understand, as we just heard in the song that Karen and team shared, uh, like all of those days being in the grave, you know that these bodies are beginning to decompose, right? 
I mean, just typical, these are human bodies, so the, the decomposition's taking place, and the world is watching the cameras, the CNNs, the Fox News, the MSNBCs, all the cameras of the world are fixated on these bodies that are lying in the street. The Antichrist is walking around now as a world leader, and he is taking credit for killing these two people who brought all of this destruction to the world, and he is being elevated as the Savior of the world at that moment. But then three and a half days later, it says this, that that God breathed the breath of life, go back to Genesis, the breath of life back into these two. And these bodies that were dying and dead and lying in the streets, they begin to move. And these two people stand up. And it says there in that passage I just read, it says, then they heard a voice from heaven calling them saying, come up here. In other words, all the world heard a loud voice from, they heard a loud voice from heaven say this, come up here. In other words, they heard the voice of God. And then it tells us that these two ascended into heaven as the entire world watched. Can you imagine what people are thinking now? As they're sitting there watching these two people ascend into heaven, it didn't happen instantly. They were taken up. And so as they were taken up and they ascended into heaven, a great earthquake came. And it says a tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. And it says 7,000 people were killed. Now, if you go back into the original Greek that says 7,000 people, it actually says this, 7,000 names of men were killed. Now, why is that significant? It tells us this, that in that moment, 7,000 incredibly important leaders, people of significance were struck dead in that earthquake in a moment, which means now that the entire people of the world, that 7,000 of their leaders that they celebrated, who all probably had converged on Jerusalem to celebrate the death and destruction of these two witnesses, now those 7,000 leaders are gone. Again, now spiraling everything into even more destruction as the second half of the tribulation begins. And that's why it says in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And what's the third woe? The third woe is just simply this, the end of the world. The end of the world that will be unveiled over these next three and a half years as the Antichrist causes destruction, as the Antichrist turns his back on God's chosen people, the people of Israel, as all the death and destruction and all the bowls of judgment that we'll read about and talk about in a couple of weeks, as all of that takes place, it all happens here in the third woe, which brings us to that seventh trumpet that Charles talked about last week, that little, remember the Charles's praise break? I was a little bit nervous when I was watching that, by the way. I didn't know what that meant when Charles said we're going to have a praise break. I was getting a little nervous. But anyway, that that moment of just a little interlude, a little separation there. But then the third woe comes. And the beginning of the third woe comes in chapter 12 on page 42 of your notebook if you have one. And it says this in Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, another picture, another introduction of these characters that are coming onto the scene. And it says this, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, when you talk about this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of twelve stars, kind of looks a little bit like this. We've got a picture here of, of what that might look like. That's a pretty impressive picture, isn't it? This is kind of an impressive visualization of what the passage is talking about here. And you say, well, what does this mean? And who is this? Like, who would this woman be? Can somebody yell out who this woman might be? Who would you think this woman would be? It's a woman who gives birth to a child. That kind of little clue, right? 
Mary wrong. A lot of people do believe it is Mary. In fact, the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine would say that that woman that's talked about here is Mary. But see, here's the problem. When you read this passage and it talks about this woman who is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and the stars on her head, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 37. And in Genesis chapter 37, there's a guy named Joseph. And Joseph had a dream. And remember when Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers and his father about this dream and they were so offended? In Genesis chapter uh, 37, he talked about this dream that he had. And let me just read to you, just if I could, just for a moment, quickly, uh, what that dream says. It says this, sorry, Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Joseph said, look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. It's a reference back to Genesis chapter 37. So while some people believe that this woman is Mary, and others might believe that this woman is like representation of the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church, really what this is is once again, it's a picture of Israel. Why? Because Israel gave birth to the child, Jesus. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? And so this is a picture once again of Israel, and we'll see that as we read through this passage, that it clearly references God's chosen people, and it talks about what God's chosen people are going to go through during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period as the Antichrist is on the attack and he's going to destroy the people of Israel. But clearly here, this is a reference to uh, the people of Israel. The child, of course, you know who the child is, right? The child is the baby Jesus, right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me uh, the one to be a ruler in Israel, where whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Verses 5 of Revelation chapter 12, talking about who this child is, it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child. Isn't it great, by the way, that this book that was written thousands of years ago and was written by God, the inspiration of God, that he actually referenced the fact that there's male and there's female. That's not another story. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God. That's a reference to the ascension that Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven, to God in his throne. And then the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Let me see if you guys remember from a few moments ago. How long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. So what it's saying here is that this woman, Israel, is going to be attacked by the Antichrist, by the beast, and by Satan himself for the next three and a half years of the Great Tribulation until the time that Jesus returns. It says here that this woman fled into the wilderness, that she went out there. Some people believe that that's maybe Petra, the rock city of Petra in Jordan, where they've kind of carved out, the the Nabataeans carved out the the beautiful uh, castles and homes that are actually in the sides of these rock mountains. There's only one way in and one way out. Some people believe that that's where Israel is going to uh, flee to, uh, the people of Israel during this time. I don't necessarily think that's true because, again, the idea is something that's been prepared for them and, and protection, but, you know, in today's world, like a place that's only got one way in and one way out, that seems a little dangerous to me because they can drop bombs right down in the middle. But regardless, like they're going to go to a place that God is going to pre- prepare for them and protect them. The woman fled. J. Vernon McGee says this, certainly Israel has suffered satanic 
anti-Semitism from the time of the birth of Christ until the present. In fact, even since before that day, because Satan knew that Christ would come from this nation. In other words, Satan is going to be on the attack of the people of Israel. Why? Because God made a promise. And Satan's going to come after them. Now, it says that there's a woman. And this woman is going to be there. She's going to be giving birth to a child. That's Israel giving birth to Jesus who came as the Messiah, the ruler. But if you read verse 3, we'll go back and read verse 3. It introduces another character. And it says this, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. So who is this dragon? This dragon who has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. On his head. When you look at that statement, the great fiery red dragon, uh, it comes to the Greek word there is great, is, is where we get the word mega. It's like megas. And fiery red, there's the, the word of, of, of puros. And then dracon is the idea of literally of a dragon. And so it's kind of the picture. Again, we have another illustration here of this dragon. And that's what it's going to look like. That is a picture, a drawing of what this dragon might look like. You can see a dragon with seven heads. This dragon with seven heads, with ten horns on those seven heads, and on those ten horns are crowns that will be on each of those heads. So who is this dragon? This is a picture of Satan. And in fact, we know that because in a few verses it actually says this is Satan. So I'm giving you a little bit of a heads up before we get there. So this is a picture of Satan. This is what Satan, this is why today when you see so many representations of Satan, you know, you always see a red you know, red devil, and he's holding their pitchfork, and he's got horns and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of an illustration, a picture of what it says here in Revelation chapter 12 of what this, this beast, this dragon will look like, that he will come from the deep, and that this dragon will come, and he will come to destroy the woman. We'll read that in a moment. Danny Aiken says this, the description of these seven heads, the ten horns, the seven diadems, recalls the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to see this beast again in Daniel chapter 13 next week and again later in chapter 17. It says in verse 4, And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. What does that mean? It means that Satan came. It talks about the, that his tail drew a third of the stars. That references back to Isaiah chapter 14 when Lucifer fell from heaven and a third of the angels fell with him. Also Ezekiel chapter 28. And he stood before the woman. Who's the woman again? Israel. He stands before Israel ready to devour the child. You go back through all the way back into Matthew. What happened when Jesus was born? When Jesus was born, remember? Herod wanted to kill all the male children, right? Uh, like this is a picture of the story that's been going on from the beginning of time that the dragon, Satan, wants to destroy Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the only hope. Satan waited for the opportunity to destroy this child as he has always desired, but God has always had a different plan. So what happens to the dragon? And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel Michael that we saw back in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Think about that for a moment, that a war broke out in heaven. Not on earth. We've seen wars here. This is a war that breaks out in heaven at this time. 
And the war that breaks out in heaven is between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels. And it goes on to say, but they, Satan and his angels, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. There's that reference in verse 9 of who this dragon is, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. What does this passage talk about? It talks about the fact that until this moment, at three and a half years into the tribulation period, that Satan has always had the opportunity of walking into the presence of God in heaven. Satan has had an open door policy to the throne room of God. And we can see that back in Job when Satan appears and, and begins to accuse Job, right? The Bible says that, that, that Satan is the accuser and he accuses us before God all the time. We've seen that all through Scripture, that Satan has always had an opportunity of walking into the presence of God and, and accusing us in front of God, trying to, to, to attack us in front of God. But here, once and for all, Satan and his angels, by war taking place, they're thrown out of heaven for eternity. They're thrown out of heaven for good. No longer do they have access to God. Now, our own Bob Beinheim here the church wrote this in a book that he wrote. He said this, while pondering the thought that Satan will no longer have access to the throne of God, it occurred to me that he will more than likely retaliate his removal from heaven by venting his anger on Israel, the apple of the Lord's eye. You see again the picture to the woman that we read about a few moments ago, that, that the, the Satan stood before this woman wanting to destroy, and this woman had to flee for her safety. Here's a picture again of what that looks like. Satan is thrown out of heaven. He comes down to earth for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, and that is when literally all hell breaks loose. Because Satan is here to destroy everything and everybody. And the target that he's after is he wants to go after Israel. Now, there's a couple of things here that gives us some hope, right? We talked about it a few weeks ago, the 144,000 Jews who were saved during the tribulation period. We talked about the great multitudes of others who were saved. Now, if you think about it, 2.6 billion roughly people left on the earth after the, 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 uh, the, the, the killing during the seven trumpet judgments we talked about last week, that there will be millions of people potentially who come to Christ during the tribulation period. Now, understanding that's great hope, but it's also sitting back thinking that Satan, man, he is on the attack to kill every single one of them, which takes us back again to the seals. Remember that under the altar, he saw the martyrs, those who came to Christ during the great tribulation. In other words, that they will, even though they come to Christ, that they will be attacked, they will be sought after, and they will be destroyed. But what does God say about that? Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and following. John says, then I heard a loud, loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser, Satan, of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night. Satan has always accused us before God, has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. I want to pause right there in verse 11. And verse 11 on the screen here, and I want you to see that. If you've got a pen, I want you to underline a couple of things in this verse I'm going to give to you in just a second. Highlight it on your phone, whatever it might be. Here's what it says. They overcame him. Who's they? They, the people of this earth. 
Now, for them, that's the tribulation. But for today, Satan is still accusing us before God. He's still on the attack after us, right? He's like a lion who's prowling, seeking whom he may devour. That's what Scripture tells us. So how do we overcome him? Here's what it says. They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, underlined blood of the Lamb. The first way to overcome Satan always is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope you have, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. The second way, and by the word of their testimony. In other words, not by them standing up and talking. It's by living their life according to the word of God. That their lives are a living testimony of the word of God. That's number two, underline that. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's a way of saying this, that they put Jesus first. So how do we overcome Satan now as they will in the tribulation? You come and you overcome him by being under the blood of Jesus Christ to salvation, by recognizing it's the word of God and living a life according to the word of God, and then not loving our lives so much we put him first in everything. It goes on to say in verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And there's the picture of what the last three and a half years of the tribulation period looked like. Satan knows his days are numbered. And that's why it's called the third woe. That's why it's called the great tribulation in the last three and a half years. That's why... When we read through in the bowls of judgment that are coming, and next week, Revelation chapter 13, talking about the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, that's why we see things are going to get really, really bad, because Satan knows his days are numbered, and he wants to take down as many people as he possibly can. So what happens next? Revelation chapter 12, verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. He persecuted Israel who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. That's a picture of God protecting Israel during the time of the great tribulation. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, can anybody tell me what time and times and half a time are? So a time is a year. So a time and times and half a time, three and a half years. For the three and a half years of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, God's going to be protecting Israel. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened, I'm sorry, go back. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. You can take that literally, that they will send floods, that Satan is going to send floods to drown Israel, or, or that the, the, the flood is a picture of, of, of battle armies that will be coming after Israel. It says this, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth, Satan attacking, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. In other words, Satan was mad at Israel, and he's attacking Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, all the people of the earth, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is key, that in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, Antichrist, who had made a pact with Israel in the first three and a half years, he breaks the pact after the middle point of the Tribulation, and for the last three and a half years, he is on the attack against anybody who claims to know God or who is following God. It's going to get bad, it says. 
Now it says the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, which is a reference back to the book of Exodus uh, chapter 19, when it talks about how that God protected Israel in the midst of Egypt by like raising her up on wings as eagles and, and protecting her then, that God will continue to protect. And so as we move now into the second half of the tribulation period where everything gets worse, the picture is just simply this, and this is very, very important to understand, that on this earth, an earth that if it were to happen today, the eight billion people started. And now here we are at the midpoint of the tribulation period. So the rapture took place three and a half years later. There's now 2.6 billion people left. Can you imagine what already has taken place in the death and destruction? The church being taken up, a fourth of the world being killed, then another third of the world being killed. And there's 2.6 billion people left. There's fear, there's anxiety, there's pain, there's suffering, there's famine, there's like a, a lack of hope everywhere. Where do we go? Where do we turn? What do we do? And then all of a sudden at that midpoint of the tribulation, there rises up a leader. And then that leader rises up, that leader's the Antichrist. And he begins to help people. And he begins to try to bring people together. And everyone begins to trust this guy this leader. And that leader then says, well, if you come alongside of me and if you follow after me as he's leading the entire world, if you take my mark, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, if you take my mark, then I will protect you. And the world runs after following this leader, the great deceiver, because Satan is using the Antichrist to lead this world towards more and more destruction. Because what is Satan's only hope? Satan knows his time's numbered, right? The only hope that Satan has is this, is to do everything that he possibly can to keep people from trusting in Christ during that last three and a half years. It's the only hope he has. Satan knows he's going to be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. He knows that. He knows he's headed towards destruction. He knows he's not going to win. The only hope he has is to keep as many people as possible away from God. And so he's on the attack. And as you walk through that last three and a half years, the darkness that pervades, the bowls of judgment that we'll talk about in two weeks, man, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And people are going to be sitting there having already gone through all that they'd gone through to this point, sitting there thinking, can it get any worse? And the answer is yes, it will. And they're thinking there is no hope. But as we get up to around chapters 20, 21, we're going to see the hope that comes when all of a sudden that Jesus rides in on a white horse, that he comes in with victory as a sword coming out of his mouth, and he comes to destroy, to slay the dragon once and for all, and that we who have trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we will reign forever and ever and ever and ever alongside of him. That's where our hope is found. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've got to be honest with you. There are some that might be sitting here thinking, well, that's great that people will be able to get saved during the tribulation period. It is great. It's wonderful. But I've got to be honest with you. Those who get saved during the tribulation period are going to be doing so, number one, at risk of great peril and great harm, but number two, they're going to have to swim seriously upstream to be able to do so. Why? 
because Satan is going to be doing everything that he possibly can, unleashing against them to stop them. And remember, a fourth of the world killed, a third of the world killed. Like, hey, here's the point. The reason we preach the gospel so fervently today is this, is God has called us to make sure that as many people as possible trust Christ now so when that rapture takes place that we don't have to worry about what the book of Revelation says. We need to understand it. We need to know what's, where we're headed. We need to know what the world's going to go through. We need to understand all of that. Oh, but listen, God's hope, God's desire, God's plan, God's call on your life is so that you would never have to experience one day of the seven-year tribulation period. And that's why we preach the gospel. And that's why we celebrate people who've gotten saved. And it's why today, if you're seated in this room and you've never come to the point in your life where you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and was buried and three days later rose again so that you might have life in his name. If you've never done that, today is the day. Because that day might be today. We don't know when the rapture will take place. We don't know when the tribulation will start. It could be now. It could be lunchtime today. It could be when the fireworks are going off tonight at Celebrate America. That'd be kind of cool. But don't you dare get left behind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that in the midst of difficult passages of what the world is going to look like, that we always have hope, that we're always given hope. And so God, we thank you for the hope that comes through Christ. And I pray that today in this moment, as there's someone might be in this room or watching by television or listening by radio who's never come to that place where they've trusted that Jesus Christ is your son, that he died and rose again. I pray that right now that they would make that decision to believe in you and trust in you so they don't have to worry about experiencing what we've talked about today. And God will give you praise for it. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. Our team is gathering here at the front as we do every week. When the service is over, our team is here. We'd love to talk with you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, every man and woman across the front of this sanctuary today, they would love to share with you the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God sent his son Jesus to die for you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how you've lived. Doesn't matter how many times you've blown it. Does not matter. Does not matter. Let me say it again. Does not matter. God loves you anyway. And Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still dead in your sins, Christ died for you. And all you've got to do is believe. Our team is here. We'd love to talk with you about that. In a moment, we're going to conclude our service. And so if you don't know Christ, if you're not 100% sure, man, I encourage you to come down and talk to one of our team. Maybe you want to come and kneel here and pray for a loved one, a friend. Maybe you want to come and join our church family. We'd love to have you come and be a part of our family as we continue to preach the gospel around the world. We have teams today in uh, several different countries around the world doing ministry. Last couple of weeks at our uh, Thomas Road Outpost and our Camp Hideaway, we've had 128 kids come to Christ in the last four weeks of camp ministry here at Thomas Road. We had 118 more come to Christ at VBS. Man, it's incredible to see, man. We're... We're seeing people whose lives will not have to go through the great tribulation because of the gospel. And we'd love to have you be a part of what we're doing here. Whatever it is that God is telling you to do, do it today before you walk out of this room. Make the decision that will change eternity for you. 
Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony it brings. We thank you for the future that it promises, the hope that it gives. God, I pray there will not be one person who hears my voice today who does not make sure that they will spend eternity with you. God will give you the praise for the work you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our team is here. We'd love to talk with you. Next week, we'll be in Revelation chapter 13. I recommend, read ahead, chapter 13. We're going to be talking about it next week. Altars open. God bless you. We'll see you tonight. Celebrate America. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love. Thank you.